Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Before we kick this off, I want to uh, introduce um, all the speakers that we have today. I've got two of my colleagues from the Heritage Foundation. We have uh, Rachel Gresler, who's a research fellow in economics at the Grover M. Herman Center, um, and also Adam Michelle. He's the senior policy analyst at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget. And lastly, we have Jonathan Williams. He is executive vice president and the chief economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council, where he works with hundreds of legislators uh, each and every week. So I want to, uh, before we kick off, I want to uh, present uh, a poll for you to consider. Um, over the past 20 years, by how much do you think spending, inflation-adjusted inflation spending has increased per capita over the last 20 years in this country? Think about that. Uh, do you think that we've gone uh, down 10% over the past 20 years? Have we stayed stable? Have we increased by 10, 20, or 30%? Just keep that in mind throughout this uh, presentation and go ahead and you can go ahead and vote now and take a guess. And we will have that result for you later on in the show. So without further ado, I want to welcome and uh, encourage my, my colleagues to go ahead and turn on their videos and we will uh, get started. So over the last uh, few months as uh, we've tried to respond as a nation to the COVID crisis. Uh, there's no doubt that this has been a, a definitely a health concern for many, many people, but we are now beginning to see the economic toll. We see it in the jobs numbers. We see it in the economic growth numbers. We've seen it with the market volatility, uh, but this is also having a big impact on, on state budgets. The state uh, budgets are seeing less tax revenue and they go through the rainy day funds. Some of them have gone through those funds already. Well, we have seen a lot of demand on the part of governments to demand more in the way of federal aid. Uh, we've seen a, a large amounts of aid already delivered, uh, but we've uh, seen governors demanding hundreds of billions more in unrestricted aid. We see Speaker Pelosi suggesting that we have a trillion dollars more uh, in aid. And Congress is now considering yet another package, another spending package on top of the trillions already approved that would transfer hundreds of billions of dollars to state and local governments. So when we're talking about all these numbers, we're talking trillions of dollars. <laughs> these are big numbers, but sometimes it's hard to really put that into context. Uh, my colleague, uh, Rachel Gresler, has done uh, quite a bit working with the numbers and trying to just put that into a framework that we can all understand. And I wanna see if she could uh, maybe go over uh, some of that with us now. Yes, thank you, Joel. And when we start talking about billions and trillions, I think it's hard to get a grasp on that. But what Congress has done so far, not even counting what's coming next, is added about $17,000 in debt to the average American household. 
And so this is an enormous figure that we're talking about, and somehow this is going to have to be paid off in the future. Um, a lot of that money that has gone out, the states are saying, you know, they only got 150 billion, but really there's been a lot of that money is helping them in some way. So in addition to that 150 billion, there has been a $500 billion lending facility through the Federal Reserve to address those short-term revenue losses and about $1.5 trillion in relief to households, to small businesses, in the form of unemployment insurance, and that's all flowing through and it's resulting in higher income and higher sales tax revenues that the states haven't yet seen because they haven't been reopening their societies in large part to date, but they will eventually be seeing that money coming through. And when we talk about the additional amounts that are requested, you know, another trillion dollars to the states would be $7,800 per household. So we're really starting to ratchet up the amount of debt here for just this one um, event that we're addressing. Oh, thank you. And uh, Jonathan, with your conversations with uh, legislators and with state budget officers, what kind of estimates are you seeing right now about the, the impact on, on state revenues? Um, is, is there any real data coming in? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, thank you, Joel, and good to be with all of you. And thanks to our friends at the Heritage Foundation for putting this together and just continue your principled stance for freedom enhancing policies out there in this very difficult time for those of us who believed in fiscal responsibility. Uh, what we're seeing at the state level, uh, Joel, is you know, there's wild assumptions, I think, on all sides of uh, some of these uh, pictures when it comes to revenue estimations, when it comes to budget shortfall estimations. The most recent data I've seen aggregates the state budget uh, downturn, or should say revenue shortfalls, as being somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to $250 billion for fiscal year 2021, which, as you know, starts on July 1st for most states, at least. Uh, and that is, it's a big number, obviously, but I think we need to be very careful in that uh, we're taking it a bit with a grain of salt at this point in that uh, the assumptions could be uh, very widely different across states and unfortunately it's very difficult to compare data sometimes when you have some states let's say assuming a opening of the economy of uh, July versus uh, May and that will do obviously some pretty big things to the revenue numbers out there. Um, that 250 billion dollars that you mentioned how big is that in proportion to what state and local governments typically collect throughout a year in percentage terms, roughly? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a decent percent. I mean, when you look at the overall collections, depending if you're looking at state only or state and local, I mean, it's a, it's a good percentage of that. Uh, it's, it's something to be concerned about. Interestingly enough, that number is pretty close to what's already been appropriated, obviously, in Washington, D.C. as well for state and local governments, is depending on how you uh, look at what was appropriated in the CARES Act and previous packages, uh, that number is you know just north of 200, maybe 225 billion. Uh, so I Incidentally or not, it seems like what's already been appropriated for state and local governments almost matches up exactly with what the best numbers we have at this point for deficits going forward. Well, wow, that, that's interesting. I had a, a question for you about, uh, uh, we see a lot of governors that are demanding more in the in, by way of unrestricted funds, meaning that uh, these funds that they're demanding from the federal government wouldn't have to be used for health. They could be used for a variety of programs. Governor Cuomo, for instance, is demanding, I think, $50 billion dollars. Um, additional and unrestricted funds just for New York. Uh, but you have been circulating a letter uh, with the American Legislative Exchange Council, and uh, there are a lot of state legislators that have signed a letter actually saying uh, they don't want to see these massive federal bailouts. Could you tell us a bit uh, about that letter and what is motivating 
uh, individuals that you know to, to come on board on behalf of their states to say, we don't want more federal bailouts? That's an interesting question because many people assume that if you're doing business at the state level as a state elected official, you're going to want to take uh, quote unquote free dollars. Now, all of us know that there's never been a free dollar go from Washington to anywhere, especially the states, and that uh, the federal government doesn't create resources, it redistributes resources from the private sector and from state to state taxpayers. And so our lawmakers at ALEC, uh, we represent 2,000 of the, the, the lawmakers out there that to value free markets and limited government and federalism are saying thanks but no thanks because we know the long-term costs of accepting these dollars are going to be higher in many cases than any kind of short-term gain. There's no doubt that having these dollars in uh, state budget scenarios is going to make things less painful at the state level in the short term but i think the longer policy question is is it good for fiscal health uh, i think the answer is clearly no and is it good for federalism and i think that is a very essential uh, question here that we believe strongly in state autonomy state-based decision making and not one size fits all solutions from washington so i think you add those things together and that's why we've seen a huge response of now uh, more than 150 state legislators and 15 state leaders and our ALEC leader saying thanks but no thanks we don't want the federal bailout because we think it's destructive from a policy perspective long term. I know uh, Adam you've done quite a bit of research just crunching the numbers looking at state spending um, looking at it in real terms over the last 20 years what, what have you found in the last wee few weeks as you've been diving through that data? Yeah, th thanks, Joel. The, the the poll question that you started with gets at, at at some of these trends, and I think it's over the the past ten uh, last two decades. So since 2000, population uh, adjusted and real uh, inflation adjusted state state spending has increased by 30 percent, uh, which is which is pretty incredible when you think about it. If states were to simply roll back some of that spending back to the early 2000s, they could save about $500 billion uh, out, of, out of their budgets, which is well more than the numbers that Jonathan was just talking about uh, as far as uh, lost revenue that, that's currently being projected. Uh, and he, Jonathan was also talking about how state legislatures may not, legislators may not want to accept the, this money, even if it is available. And I think it's, uh, there's pertinent evidence from past years when we've, when we've tried this type, of, uh, this type of state bailout where the money actually does make state budgets uh, less able to address uh, crises in the future by making them uh, overextend themselves with temporary federal dollars, putting that money towards things that aren't necessarily sustainable with just state level resources. So when those federal dollars end up drying up, uh, it forces them to either uh, take on more debt, increase taxes, or simply draw out this, the, their fiscal crisis for multiple more years uh, ultimately just pushing crisis further into the future. And I, I know uh, uh, Senator Scott, for instance, the, the former governor of Florida, he actually has joined in the chorus of those saying, uh, th this isn't really fair to states such as Florida that have made more prudent fiscal decisions over the past 10 years to expect them, their taxpayers in effect, go ahead and subsidize taxpayers elsewhere. Uh, when you were taking a look at those numbers showing that the long-term spending increases, what kind of basic patterns did you find uh, between states such as Florida and Texas versus other states such as California and New York that have different governing styles? 
So there are big discrepancies. This sort of increase in spending is most definitely not uniform across the states. You look at like a Texas, they've held spending at, at the state level, at least relatively uh, constant. Uh, Florida has reduced spending over, over the last two decades by about 16%, which is ultimately what's put them in a place right now where they feel like they can respond to the current crisis. They, have a, 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 they can borrow at lower costs. They don't have bloat that otherwise is, uh, is dragging down their budgets right now in a time of crisis. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have like the New Yorks and the Californias of the world that over the last uh, couple of decades have seen uh, have increased spending by over 50%, uh, mostly going to healthcare and education spending. And it's worth noting that in those categories where they've increased spending to such a degree, there isn't a noticeable uh, difference in setting outcomes in health or education uh, in those states uh, anywhere outside of the norm of other states that spend something uh, more in line with, with the average. So there, the, these states that have just been uh, continuing to spend more and more and more uh, are, are certainly not in a place right now to be uh, pleading poverty. And Joel, if I could jump in on that as well, I think Adam's point is exactly right. We saw the news stories of Illinois uh, Senate leaders asking for more than $40 billion to bail out that state's budget and pension uh, crisis. Uh, and we just have very different uh, forms of government across different states. And that's great. It's part of the American experiment of federalism and state autonomy in these laboratories of democracy. I know, Joel, you worked with us on our Rich States, Poor States report every year that we put together at ALEC. And you look at a big state like Florida that was just mentioned that is really overall reduced uh, spending over time when you look at it based on population and inflation and you adjust it for that and you compare it to a state like New York which up until recently New York was actually larger by population than Florida. Florida surpassed New York in the last decade and is going to see that result when it comes to new congressional representation in Washington after 2020 but you look at the numbers New York actually spends now twice as much per person than Florida does. It's unbelievable that New York City alone, Joel, spends as much as the state of Florida does when it looks at. So you look at these vastly different forms of governance across the states, and it's no wonder why New York and Illinois lawmakers are asking for a bailout. And it's uh, we're hearing crickets from places like Florida because they can take care of their own problems. Well, and that brings I, I up the fact, you know, if it's a two to one ratio there, then any amount of taxpayer bailout that is going to the states means that for every dollar that goes to Florida, $2 are going to New York on a per capita basis. And it really creates some inequities and unfairness. Yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting. Um, I, th uh, I think it was last week, one of the state legislators in Illinois actually came right out and said that as part of the, the federal, uh, possible federal bailout packages in states, uh, he actually wanted a bailout of the Illinois pension system. Uh, I know uh, Rachel's been working quite a bit on this issue. Uh, what, what have you seen in the past few weeks just by way? Is that just a unique example in Illinois, or have you seen this, uh, these types of demands uh, increasing uh, across the country? Yeah, I mean, Illinois' pension problem and all, most of the states that have pension problems, these are things that are a half century in the making. They have almost nothing to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, and yet this has become an opportunity for those lawmakers in the states to ask for money to bail out their pensions. You know, Illinois is spending 25% of its budget on pensions to retirees. 
it's in a situation where it can't really get its way out of debt and it's basically facing insolvency. And really the process there that needs to be done is to reform the system. You know, the average person retires in their 50s in Illinois and those who have worked a full career receive over $2 million in pension benefits. That means that you might need to scale those back at least going forward. You don't need to take away the promises that have already been made. But if we give them a bailout, they wanted $10 billion for their pensions alone. We send that to them and it just prolongs their needed reforms. I don't know if you had anything to add on that one, Jonathan. Well, it's an essential issue. Uh, every year, as you know, Joel, we at uh, Alec put together the uh, estimates of unfunded liabilities by state in the 290 or so publicly state administered plans. And those numbers, you know, keep on growing. Uh, the numbers are in the trillions, which, you know, in Washington, you talk about a figure like five or six trillion, and it, it seems pretty reasonable compared to, unfortunately, how the debt has gone. And now we're at 25 trillion plus with the national debt. Uh, but at the state level, that's real money. And as Rachel pointed out, it's a big percentage of state budgets that is now being diverted towards making their annually required payments to pensions. And so, I think the administration and the guidance that we've seen from Treasury wants to be very clear that previously appropriated aid coming from the CARES Act and previous federal legislation should be going towards COVID-related expenses for states, health expenses and other things that can help bridge the gap in a temporary fashion. Uh, what is exactly against the intent of what happened in Washington uh, with that CARES package and that aid to the states that's already been passed uh, was that it would be used to backfill bad promises that have been made in decades worth, as Rachel pointed out, or to just plug a budget deficit. Uh, and so that's something that's, I think, essential as we debate what's potentially next on Capitol Hill. Thank you. Uh, I have a, a question that's in a bit of a, a thorny area, legally speaking. Uh, we've seen uh, over the past uh, several years, we've seen Detroit uh, went, went uh, belly up, went bankrupt. We saw Puerto Rico in effect, go into default on a lot of their bonds. And back in the uh, early 90s, we saw the entire county of Orange County, California, one of the wealthiest counties uh, in the nation, actually go bankrupt. Um, and then in recent weeks, we actually uh, heard Senator Mitch McConnell suggesting uh, that perhaps states uh, be permitted to go bankrupt. What are your thoughts? Uh, number one, what are your what are your general thoughts um, on that? And in what circumstances and what instances? Um, is bankruptcy actually an option for badly mismanaged government? And what might be the positive or negative repercussions of, of that occurring? I can start here. I mean, bankruptcy is not currently an option for states. States can allow their municipalities and their cities to declare bankruptcy, but under the contracts clause, that would be a violation. Um, so as it's not an option now, you could still have kind of a de facto type bankruptcy situation take place if the states had all of its creditors and its public employees come and sit down and it negotiated what it is able to afford and not afford. But regardless of what that process will look like for states like Illinois that are basically facing insolvency um, over the next decade, what needs to be known is what the process will be so that those people who own bonds in the state, the residents in the state, and those public employees can know what the process is going to look like. The problem is when you don't know ahead of time and then it becomes a real crisis situation. Um, but the reality is that no state or city is going to have to declare bankruptcy or become insolvent just because of COVID-19. I mean, when 
Puerto Rico declared bankruptcy, its debt was equal to three times of its annual revenues. When Detroit declared bankruptcy, its debt was 13 times its annual revenues. And yet what we're talking about now is a 10% loss in one year's worth of revenues. You know, it could be the straw that broke the camel's back for places that are already in trouble, but it's not enough alone to cause bankruptcy situations. And also uh, on that point, uh, I think it's really important for us to all remember the context uh, by which we got to the place where we're in. And that is we had a very strong national economy. We had strong state economies. And by virtue of that, we had very strong state revenue figures going into this uh, unprecedented uh, pandemic event that we've all uh, seen over the last couple of months. And so states, uh, it's a bit of woulda, coulda, shoulda in this case, but states absolutely should have been saving for a rainy day. That's something that we often go out and talk about best policy practices is states having robust rainy day funds for that purpose, that states have enough assets in their unemployment trust funds, let's say, that are being acutely uh, drawn down right now, given the, the mass unemployment numbers. And other things in terms of states having a cushion, so they're not forced to cut core government services, they're not forced to raise taxes, and that, by the way, they're not forced to come to Washington with their handout lot being for federal taxpayers to pick up the tab. And when you get into the scenario of a bankruptcy potential uh, discussion, and I've been asked about this hundreds of times out in the states as we've been doing our events, is Rachel's right. There is no provision in U.S. Constitution or in bankruptcy law for state bankruptcy. It, it would need probably a change in federal law, if not the federal constitution, to allow such a thing in the sense that we would have it for a municipality. Uh, and I think the key is, though, from an economic perspective is, whether it's bailout, whether it's bankruptcy, or what the federal remedy is, let's make sure states don't have the wrong incentives because if they're going to have a moral hazard problem where we're just incentivizing irresponsibility at the state and local government and they know that every time there's a financial crisis or there's some sort of a national uh, emergency that they can expect the federal taxpayers to come in and bail them out or allow a get out of jail free card to some extent if it would be defaulting on debt or defaulting on pensioners or defaulting on state contracts, that sets a horrible uh, example and a horrible incentive for state policymakers to actually do the right thing, balance the budget, and protect taxpayers. Thank you. And thanks for putting those numbers in, in context, uh, uh, Rachel. So I think uh, we have a growing list uh, of questions, but before we get to the questions, I did have just one, one final question I wanted to ask uh, all of you. Um, as an alternative, on the federal level, as an alternative to the bailouts, are there any policy recommendations that you would make uh, to Congress? I'll, I'll start with, with that one, Joel. I think that's the, the, this is ultimately a state level uh, issue, and they should all be adjust, uh, addressing it but through uh, reevaluating their budgets and, and making decisions at the state and local level. But at the federal level, the, there are a whole host of rules and regulations that follow existing uh, federal dollars that make it more expensive for states to do things they would otherwise be doing. Um, things like uh, a, a more recent example in the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which was one of the first um, coronavirus bills that came out of Congress, they put a mandate on state governments that require them to provide uh, leave to all their employees, uh, and, and but provided no way to pay for that. That's an example of Congress providing an unfunded mandate to the states that they should roll back and let states make those decisions as to 
what type of leave to, uh, to allow to, to give to which of their employees. There's similar requirements in education that should be rolled back to make it more expensive to provide educational services at the state level. Similar with uh, in infrastructure, there's uh, the Davis-Bacon Act is a classic example of the federal government requiring states to pay higher wages than they otherwise would on infrastructure projects simply because there's a couple dollars of uh, federal money um, uh, wrapped up in the project. So these rolling back these unfunded mandates is a good way to lower costs for states and make it easier for them to make these sorts of budgeting decisions. And I think for the states themselves, they've got to face the same reality that ordinary Americans and businesses do, and you have to budget. Um, and that's going to mean some cutbacks. It's going to mean prioritizing spending. And one of the biggest things on the state level is just as private companies are looking to maybe not making 401k contributions this year or no pay raises, or some of them have even had to announce pay cuts, that's something that has to be on the table at the state and local level as well. And Joel, you're familiar with our uh, publication, the State Budget Reform Toolkit, that includes many of those things uh, that Rachel and Adam were talking about that we developed in the last uh, crisis for states and the debate over the bailout and uh, the need to really get to kitchen table budgeting and priority-based budgeting. And we use the Washington State case study that our good friend Bob Williams and others have documented over the years. On a Democrat governor came together with a Republican legislator and Democrat legislative members and said, our economy is too weak for a tax increase, and they solved what was at the time a $2.5 billion budget shortfall without a dime of tax increases through the process of deciding needs versus wants, what's available revenue, what are core functions of government, and how do you marry those things up? That's exactly the kind of bipartisan, nonpartisan solutions that states need to be looking at that prioritize taxpayers and economic growth right now. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for all that insight. Uh, so we have about uh, 20 minutes left here and we do have a number of questions. So uh, I think we should maybe tackle some of these. Uh, we have one that is asking, how can we successfully remind Congress people that continuing to spend will result in the United States having the same end as the Weimar Republic after World War One? And this is in reference to uh, extreme levels of, of public debt and also of money creation by the central bank. And uh, I would want to say first, I, I guess I'll take a first crack at that one. Um, I, I don't think we're anywhere yet near um, that type of spending or that type of debt that we saw uh, either in Germany in World War I or that we've seen in more recent years in places such as uh, Venezuela that had a completely out of control um, fiat monetary system. But we do have uh, a danger here. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I've been concerned with are the fact that we have the central banks printing trillions of dollars and using that to go ahead and buy up corporate debt, buy up treasury bonds, buy up mortgage debt. And now we're going to see uh, the Federal Reserve actually transferring large sums of money directly to cities and counties and states. The danger is that once banks begin lending again, that that new, uh, that new capital will then be lent out and multiplied. And that could result in um, enormous upward um, price pressure in the future. Uh, but what we see right now is we're, we're in a very severe economic contraction with both supply and demand greatly diminished. And in many sectors, we currently see deflation. And that's just a result of uh, very suppressed supply and demand. But I do think this is a very valid concern um, that as the economy begins uh, ramping up in the future, that we might be stoking a longer term debt crisis that could lead to higher interest rates or that could lead to dramatically higher inflation. Uh, rates. 
Um, and I, I'm sure that uh, probably all three of you have something to, to add on that important question. So I'll turn it over to the three of you. I guess I'll, I'll just start with a lesson that I think is important for both the, at both the state level and the federal level. And that's that we can't spend our way back into prosperity. That simply just pushing money out the door isn't going to ultimately uh, jumpstart the economy in the way that uh, often economists lead people to believe um, that, that Congress or state governments can. It just simply doesn't work. We, we know from past uh, recessions that, that, that these stimulus programs are overpromised and, and underdeliver and often prolong the recession. What we do know that works is, is actually fixing these debt crisis, crises through spending reductions on, on the expenditure side is the way to jumpstart uh, uh, or to make sure a recovery isn't deeper and longer than it needs to be. The uncertainty around having large debts out there in the future, whether it be unfunded pop, uh, pension obligations or uh, 20 plus trillion dollars in debt, is that it creates a lot of uncertainty for investors in the market and makes, it makes it harder for the economy to come back knowing that there's tax increases and, and other types of, of negative consequences out there in the future. So addressing the, these, these, uh, these fiscal crises through uh, spending reforms now is actually the way to make sure that we're on a stable footing moving forward so that the private sector can then lead any type, any recovery that, that comes from this. I just doubled down on what Adam said. I think that's right and what you've already said, Joel. But well, a couple other just pieces of that is the growth of the national debt has been very concerning because I was looking back in my notes from the last time we were educating on the dangers of policy of bailout of states, and that was 2009. And I was sitting in a chair very similar to this one at ALEC uh, back then uh, as director of tax and fiscal policy. And we were looking at it, and the national debt was only, I'll put that in quotations, only 10 trillion. Last time we had this kind of a situation where the states were asking for, in some cases, uh, a bailout. Today, 25 trillion, that growth uh, is very scary, right? And it's throughout a period that was some of the best times for economic growth and longest, at least, equities uh, boom in the market that we've seen in our lifetimes. When the federal government should have been paying down debt during that period, we unfortunately made the policy mistake that's a bipartisan policy mistake in many cases of overspending during the good times, which is always a, uh, a real risk out there. Now, we do have, of course, going for us as a nation that we are still the world's reserve currency that's going to temper some of the impact that you pointed out that we're not there yet, certainly in a Weimar Republic sense. But I think going forward, we need federal spending rules. And I know Heritage has been great at putting out some great ideas on the Swiss debt break. And we at the state level have talked about Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights and fiscal rules that the president put in his budget through Russ vote at the OMB as director. Uh, and things like that we need to think about because clearly business as usual in Washington is not working when it comes to restraining spe spending and restraining debt. Thank you, Jonathan. And I'll just add that the biggest threat with the debt is that we don't know when it becomes a problem. It seems like it's not a problem now, and yet it's at a level that it should be. Um, and then when it gets to the point that it is a problem, things start unwinding so quickly that there's no longer time to take reasonable measures. You have to take more severe austerity measures. Yeah, yeah and I think if you look back and see what happened uh, just several years ago with Greece, that uh, debt crisis hit very, uh, very quickly. Um, went from what trip, the equivalent of AAA ratings on the debt and uh, fairly stable um, 
economy and, and revenue, and it it went from that to uh, really a uh, severe um, economic turmoil within within several months. And I think we want to avoid that. Uh, got a uh, interesting question here. Uh, we know that interest rates now uh, we're near near all time record lows. Uh, in many sectors, they are all time record lows, and that includes uh, for for state and local governments uh, with rates that low. Um, shouldn't that be, um, shouldn't uh, state and local governments take advantage of that to, to borrow at those low interest rates and make long-term investments? What are your thoughts? I well, can jump in. Go ahead first, Jonathan. Uh, I mean, certainly that's a temptation that some would like to use as perhaps an excuse to rack up uh, huge amounts of debt. However, uh, however cheap, quote unquote, the debt is, it is still debt that needs to be repaid. And let's not forget states have balanced budget requirements. In fact, some states uh, do have a prohibition against accumulating debt for general obligation uh, purposes, let's say. And so uh, while it may seem too good of a deal to refuse for some spendthrift states that would just like to grow the size and scope of government, a much better solution would be getting to that priority-based budgeting uh, mentality that Washington State went through. Certainly couldn't be accused of being a right-wing state. Uh, it's been done on a bipartisan basis. And I think it's, uh, while it's tempting to take advantage of low-cost borrowing options like that, it really, you have to weigh the long-term uh, cost of that, which is hard to do because let's not forget politicians have their own incentives. Uh, first of all, is getting reelected normally. And secondly, is if a problem is going to come due beyond their term of service or when they expect to be in office, that's part of the real issues when it comes to political incentives of why defined benefit pension systems are so underfunded is elected officials get the benefits of promising things while they're in office and they know the costs are going to come due uh, years beyond their time in elected office. So it's one of these short-term, long-term and political incentive and political economy questions, really. And I think the low rates are something that are helpful in the short term now, and it can be something that can bridge a gap because the reality is a lot of the money that is flowing out to individuals and households and businesses will not be recouped by the states in terms of higher income and sales taxes until societies start reopening and people go out and they start spending money and they get their jobs back. And also the unemployment, a lot of that won't come through the taxes on it until the end of next year. So it can be a short term bridge. But the danger is if states look at these low rates and all the availability of borrowing that's now out there and they do things like issue pension obligation bonds and you go out and you sell these bonds and you only have to pay a low interest rate, but then you essentially stock market arbitrage, you invested in the market and hope that you're going to get a higher rate of return over time and that it won't actually cost you anything to have that debt. Well, Puerto Rico tried that in 2009. They issued these pension obligation bonds and then the stock market tanked and that contributed to their fiscal and economic crisis coming out of it. So it's a very risky strategy and states nor federal government should be using taxpayer money to invest in the stock market. Well, let's say that you're, you're a state with uh, that came into the crisis with a substantial rainy day fund. Uh, and this uh, might be something you're most familiar with, Jonathan. Have you seen um, a number of instances where some states are actually hesitant to draw down on those funds for fear of lowering their state bond ratings? And are bond ratings impacted uh, by changes in a rainy day fund in a period of economic crisis? 
Well, yeah, the states are all over the map when it comes to the current health of the rainy day funds. Uh, we've uh, talked about some states that have been really fiscal leaders on responsibility that have put away, you know, billions in, in state rainy day funds for a rainy day such as the day that we're in today uh, with the huge amount of revenue downturn and employment claims, et cetera. And then the other side of the spectrum, I think the last I saw at least, and this may change yet by the day, Illinois had a rainy day fund that could carry about 15 minutes of state spending. And so you have a huge uh, array of differences in how states uh, handle this. Obviously, we think that there's a balance. You don't want states accumulating assets and keeping them out of the productive private sector, needlessly so. And so states, a lot of cases, will have a cap on what they can uh, stock away in the rainy day funds. Now, of course, that's the problem for another day. The problem for today is how much do you draw down that you feel uh, may be beneficial during the short term? as a carry forward kind of approach as Rachel was saying um, but I mean when you look at bond ratings and you look at the ratings of states they look at ability to pay obviously and so there are some nuances to those uh, I'm not always the biggest fan in just simply looking at bond ratings because in some cases bond rating agencies give states an incentive to raise taxes because it helps the ability to pay but they are helpful in analyzing the liability side and analyzing real debts that are out there but I always caution you take it with a bit of a grain of salt and add some additional context such as let's say state competitiveness and other measures because higher taxes while they may help in some cases on bond rating sides obviously are bad for economic health and competitiveness longer term okay i have a, another another question from uh from a viewer that wants to know about the impact of the bailouts how, how they'll actually undermine federalism and why should we actually care? I think this is a term that most people don't understand. I mean, in short, I, mean, I think uh, in short, it's the, uh, the recognition that every state in our union is a sovereign state and that the powers of the federal government are granted to the government by the states. Uh, when you see the federal government begin to go, uh, go ahead and actually fund those local government operations, that can erode that separation. Uh, but why should we actually care about that? What are some of the real world implications? Well, first of all, uh, we're big on state tax competition and state economic competition. And I think that's one of the best dynamics that we have for those of us who are looking out for taxpayers and looking out for freedom across the 50 states is states need to compete with each other. We see businesses and individuals move every single year from high tax states towards low tax states. This massive out migration of places like Illinois that have had high tax rates and have misgoverned uh, uh, their government overall and had huge pension liabilities build up have seen you know eight or nine hundred thousand over the last uh, decade uh, move to other states that are much more friendly for uh, job creation and that's a good thing because when states compete with each other people win taxpayers win businesses win and they have a more favorable environment than would otherwise exist if there was a monopoly scenario where states just knew they could take advantage of uh, individuals and businesses without the threat of them leaving and going someplace for more economic opportunity and whenever the federal government starts to federalize decision making into a one size fits all scenario obviously it's bad uh, just on the face of it because it's not going to have tailored solutions that are representative of what people actually want because what works in delaware is not going to work in montana and what works in arizona is not going to work in maine and we need to celebrate the differences in these laboratories of democracy uh, that justice brandeis uh, had coined the term that our founders thought were very important because when you look at the bill of rights when you look 
at the Tenth Amendment, it's very clear that the federal government's authorities ought to be limited and the states and the people of the state should be empowered to make those big decisions in, in, when it comes to the economy and many other parts of our lives. And the and, people in the states need to be only paying for what the services are that they're receiving. You know, we're really talking about socializing state debts here. And if you consider, you know, three different families who go out to dinner and one goes to Chick-fil-A, one stays home and eats ramen, and one goes out to a five-star steakhouse, and you pool all that money together and say you're all going to pay equally. Well, obviously, the incentive is then for everybody to go out to the five-star steakhouse, and then everybody ends up paying more. If there are certain states that want to provide services just based on what those um, residents need, they should be allowed to do that and to only pay for them. And then in terms of the immediate pandemic, the issue at hand is if we're bailing out the states for their lost revenues, you're effectively incentivizing governors and local leaders to keep their economies shut down for much longer than they otherwise would. And that's not a good thing when we've seen already 36 million people over the last week or the last nine weeks, almost 25% of all US workers have filed for unemployment insurance. People need to get back safely to work so that the economy can produce actual things instead of just issuing new debt. I guess on, on that note, what have you been seeing um, on the state side, any type of concerns uh, regarding or related to the new federal unemployment benefits? We know that uh, you can receive $600 per week from the federal government if you're unemployed in a number of states. Uh, that $2,400 combined with the state unemployment benefits mean the typical person is actually earning more on unemployment than actually on the job. Um, what kind of impact do you foresee that having, particularly in states that are reopening more quickly, such as Florida, Texas, uh, and Georgia? Well, this additional $600 to everybody who claims unemployment, even if you were only making $50 a week before, it's become a fiasco. Not only has it driven up the number of people who are filing for unemployment because they see it as beneficial, their employers see it as beneficial to lay them off or to furlough them, but now we're seeing is certain areas um, are reopening that businesses are having a hard time getting workers to come back to work. And that makes sense. If you can make two times as much on unemployment as you can by going back to work, why are you going to go back to work until these benefits expire, which is currently set for July 31st, but we've just seen the House Democrats bill, they wanna extend that until January 31st of next year with another extension up until March of next year. So what we would be talking about is paying people $31,000 to be unemployed for a year on top of their state benefits. And so this is creating a huge problem. You know, People need to be able to go back to work in a safe way and businesses need those workers or they're gonna go out of business permanently. And Joel, this is clearly almost a textbook example of a well-intentioned government policy that has massive unintended consequences. Uh, to Rachel's point, the incentive effect of locking people in out of their jobs, and also just talking with a lot of small business owners and NFIB type members out there across the country over the last few weeks, they are very worried about um, having the ability to get workers back into the workforce. Because when you look at a um, kind of the economics 101 of it, if you tax people who work and you pay people not to work, would they really be surprised that we're gonna have problems following their own personal incentives? Now, clearly they're gonna be people that wanna get back to their livelihood or are gonna go out and do what they love doing, but when you give them such an incentive not to do that, uh, we're really ham hamstringing the economy, unfortunately, with otherwise what would have been a well-intentioned government program, right? Yeah, uh, anecdotally, I have a family friend back in Ohio, they have a construction company, a very small company, eight, eight employees, 
And the day that Congress passed the uh, that the act, CARES Act, I think it was five of the eight employees actually attempted to quit, thinking that by quitting they could get those benefits. And of course, you to get those benefits, you actually have to have your employment terminated. You can't actually quit. But it just goes to show uh, the incentive uh, there is is very warped, and it is impacting the situation now. And I, I'm fearful that as states begin to reopen, it will uh, cause this growth uh, to be suppressed longer than it well actually joel um it normally you do have to um, be laid off in order to get unemployment benefits and that's still the case for the state's unemployment benefits but that 600 bonus you actually don't have to be laid off you can quit your job as a quote direct result of covid 19 and there are also 10 new eligibility criteria with people just having to self-certify no requirement that the employer say that they had actually laid that worker off. And so there's a lot more people that are eligible for these benefits. Well, I want to uh, thank all of our panelists for joining today and the number of people that are here virtually. There's a number of questions we didn't have a chance to get to. A lot of those have to do with monetary policy. If you're interested in that tomorrow, we will be doing a webinar on that at 1 p.m. Um, so we'll, I'll do my best to get those questions answered then. But before we go, um, I, we have some poll results. We know what the answer is, thanks to Adam's research here. Um, let's see what, the, what those poll numbers show. And uh, it appears that we have a, an audience that was quite informed coming into this with 53% guessing correctly the worst possible answer, which was that per capita spending and just for inflation has increased by a whopping 30 percent over the past 20 years so uh i think my, my takeaway after hearing all, all of you speak is uh we have a lot of individuals um, in politics that uh, cling to this mantra of never let a good crisis go to waste and we see that with the bailout proposals for pensions we see that with the desire to hand over hundreds of billions of dollars with no strings attached that can be used by uh, politicians really to go ahead and advance their own political interests. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of that, uh, but I'm hoping that those of listening uh, today and those that following uh, your advice will, in their own states, not let this crisis go to waste, so to speak, and actually use this as a as a chance to actually get their fiscal house in order, take a close look at spending, go ahead and and prioritize, and and really operate with the long-term picture in mind rather than any uh, short-term political. Uh, opportunism. So with that, I want to thank all of you and thanks everyone for joining today.